0: Have you heard? Have you heard?
1: Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Have Have you heard? Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire.
2: And I'm Jack Schneider.
1: And Jack, it's the season of the books, and that means that new books are constantly arriving to the Have You Heard studio. And as you know, I'm just a podcast co-host who can't say no.
2: (laughs) Well, one of these days, Jennifer, you are going to be unable to exit the studio because I can see the pile of books that has built up behind you.
1: That is really true. And the flow of books of late has has been so enthusiastic that we're actually doing something on this episode that we've never done before. We've got two different authors of two different excellent books, both of whom are going to be providing us with insights and wisdom.
2: I think a different way of putting it is that we always provide a free, high quality product. And the question would be, you know, how do you do even better than that? And now we're actually doubling it, right? This is a two two for one, and it's free in the first place.
1: Well, let me tell you a little bit about the content of what we're going to be hearing about. So we're going to be hearing from Neil Krauss, who's a political scientist in Wisconsin, and he's got a book out called The Fantasy Economy. And he makes what I think is a really interesting case, that our K-12 schools have now been blamed decade upon decade for failing to prepare kids for an economy that he argues doesn't exist. And so when I was reading that, book I was left with really you know profound questions about why and then it happened that I was reading another book this one by Tim Schwab he's got a new book out called the Bill Gates problem and it is just chapter after chapter of of various things that that Bill Gates has done that we should worry about and he basically makes the case that Bill Gates and his ilk have so much influence thanks to their fortunes that they're ba- basically Basically, able to say, you know, the sky really is orange or there really is a dire shortage of STEM workers. I think
2: it really is important if we're thinking about the influence of policy elites in public education or in higher education, in education in general, in politics in general, to think about things like agenda setting which is a kind of staple of political science thinking and to understand that right elites aren't controlling our institutions directly right that kind of conspiracy thinking is very lightly rooted in you know really cherry picked evidence but rather their influence is exerted through shaping the things that we think are possible, in shaping the items that end up on policy agendas and that they then never have to follow through on, right? Their influence is in shaping the, the air that we breathe as we are trying to work through questions about how we're going to improve our system, how we're going to make it fairer, how we're going to address long-standing problems. And what that does is it really narrows the window of what we believe to be possible. And that, that is a very influential position to be in. And, you know, I'll just add one more thing, which is that another thing that policy elites do is that, They reinforce those beliefs among each other. And so when people make the argument that it really does matter who is at the table, not just in terms of, you know, whether or not that person has been elected, but what that person's background is, right? What that person's identity is. And one of the ways that that plays out is that if you look at who is at the table, Oftentimes, these folks may be a mix of elected officials, philanthropists, you know, uh, power elites from the two political parties. But often they share pretty similar educational backgrounds pretty similar class backgrounds, pretty similar backgrounds in terms of the institutions that they have moved through professionally, and that means that they often share a set of common assumptions about the way the world works, and that actually further empowers the most elite because they're then working with not adversaries, but acolytes, and so I just thought it was worth naming all this at the beginning so that as listeners are working their way through this episode, they aren't thinking, okay, Bill Gates, he's like George Soros. He runs the world. That really isn't it, right? But Bill Gates does exert a lot of influence, right? So do lots of other powerful actors, not through the direct control of our institutions, not by controlling our minds, but by reshaping what our leaders elected or otherwise believe is worth pursuing believe is possible to pursue in the first place.
1: I think that's so well put. And the other thing that I think that our listeners will appreciate about this episode, whether they're in K-12 or higher ed, you know, people who listen to the show are so used to being on the receiving end of data that's being used as a cudgel, right? Think about the the debate over whether teachers are actually leaving or, you know, there's a, a raging debate now in a lot of school districts about, you know, how much money they actually have. And and I think that, you know, we're like we're so used to data being trotted out to end the conversation and in some ways what makes this episode so infuriating but also eye-opening is that it gives us another reason to be skeptical and to always ask, you know, well, where where exactly did these numbers come from?
2: Yeah, and it's a reminder about something we've talked about previously on the show, which is that, you know, evidence is important, but so are values. And one of the things that we always need to be asking is, what are the values that evidence is being put to work in service of? Because there is no such thing as a kind of value-neutral policy. And that is one of the things that when folks are trotting out evidence, particularly quantitative evidence, right, they're bringing out the data and they're trying to end the conversation by sweeping any value disagreements under the rug and pretending that we have all agreed on the rules of play and that they have essentially a winning hand. And if what we then remember to do is pull those values back from under the rug, we can say, you know what, actually, that evidence does support your argument, but let's talk about the values that are embedded in the argument that you're making. Now, this is not to say that we want to encourage people to have alternate facts, but it is the case that even if evidence is real, that we can say, well... Let's let's interrogate the worldview that is actually leading you to bring this particular set of evidence to the table in the first place.
1: Well, I've really got my work cut out for me. Somehow, I have to now present to the world interviews with authors of two different books, and that means that you get to relax, Jack. But before before I let you go, I have two words for you: smug quant. <laughs>
2: Well, when you need me, Jennifer, I'll be here in the Have You Heard Cabana, having a Have You Heard Margarita.
1: Now to the main event. First up is Neil Krauss. He's a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls. If you have your map of Wisconsin handy, River Falls is all the way in the far western part of the state, almost to the Minnesota border. Neil is the author of a terrific and very provocative new book called The Fantasy Economy. And he says that in many ways, the book came out of something he has observed as a college professor over the past decade, that on the one hand, the message that everyone has to go to college is everywhere. But at his own campus, the news has been relentlessly bad. Budget cuts, warning about looming enrollment crises, cuts to liberal arts programs. And as he tried to make sense of these two things together, well, he couldn't.
3: We're told we're this really, really important thing that everyone needs, But politically, we're perpetually powerless. You can cut our budgets. You can attack tenure. You can attack now, DEI. I mean, anything. And typically, you don't lose votes. I mean, I'm a political scientist. That's not how politics works. And it didn't make sense to me. It just didn't make sense. So I started just real simple scholarship. Just how do we know these things? Where where do these claims come from? Looking at footnote three in this report. And one thing led to another, and I started discovering, wow, there's this whole world of groups and numbers that are pretty much always unfavorable to us.
1: The fantasy in the title of Neil's book refers to claims we hear relentlessly about the economy, that there is an urgent shortage of skilled workers, particularly in STEM fields, that fantasy is then used to drive a political narrative, that the blame for this deficit, which will soon lead to economic disaster, belongs to our K-12 schools and to our higher education system.
3: A lot of these notions that we have about the economy and what education can do for you are really misleading. You know, the real economy, which we all live in, actually is dominated by a lot of service sector, low-wage jobs, almost none of which are unionized. The labor market hasn't changed all that much in 20 or 30 or 40 years in terms of the number of STEM jobs and all this kind of stuff that looks kind of similar to what it did decades ago. But it's become so entrenched In higher ed especially, and I think in K-12 still, I mean, this is kind of the air we breathe, that the education system is always failing, is always inadequate, and the skills of the workforce are never enough. They're always inadequate. Those two things are just core beliefs almost that are repeated. Oftentimes, you don't even have to repeat them. We just assume them and then go from there.
1: Neil wanted to understand how we got here. And so he started digging, and before long, he'd found his way to a Reagan-era report that seemed to have been instrumental in really setting the whole fantasy economy narrative in motion. It was the sort of doom and gloom report that we're so used to now, but its message, that K-12 schools were failing to produce enough skilled workers and hence leading the country towards economic ruin, was still pretty novel.
3: The whole fantasy economy really started with K 12 in the 1980s and a report that I cite throughout the book, Workforce 2000, that was funded by the Reagan administration and published by the Hudson Institute. Higher ed wasn't really thought of in those terms in the 80s and 90s, not yet, right? There was some stuff coming out about higher ed, but it was kind of left alone, doing its own thing. So most of the discussion, pretty much all the discussion, was on the K 12 schools are failing and there's never enough skilled workers. And we interviewed all these CEOs that appear repeatedly in articles and reports, they all say the same thing. And before you know it, those claims are justifications for all the major changes, for vouchers, for charter schools, and eventually, of course, for No Child Left Behind, for test-based accountability.
1: Reports like Workforce 2000 ushered in what Neil argues was a profound shift in the way that we think about the mission of schools. That was so
3: critical and so huge. And that happened that happened they won essentially politically i'm saying we need to go back and look at that and say hey wait a minute prior to the 80s education wasn't linked exclusively to your standard of living it was looked at much more broadly in terms of you know creating educated citizens in a democracy and all the different purposes of education were sort of taken as a given and then you know starting in the 80s basically, no, it's all about the schools. It's all about education. They're going to be the institutions that determine your standard of living end of story, which of course is very convenient for all the same individuals and institutions that are trying to get rid of labor unions that are basically outsourcing jobs and not raising the minimum wage and all the rest of it.
1: That Reagan era report barely mentioned higher ed. But it wasn't long before policymakers and philanthropists began to include colleges and universities in this story of a perpetual crisis regarding the lack of skilled workers. And the more Neil traced the origins of the fantasy economy, the more he saw the attacks on K-12 and higher education as essentially the same story.
3: The more I looked into kind of both— you know, I really kind of discovered that this has really been a movement that has been targeted at K-12 and higher ed right from the start. Right from the start, the notion was that we're going to send everyone to college, that that's going to be a goal. I and mean, this goes back decades. And so eventually when underemployment, Great Recession became kind of a major story, then foundations decided to create these new research institutes and really, really focus on higher ed and the higher ed press. You know, as I see it, it's really part of one story. I mean, if you can talk about charter schools and vouchers and all the rest of it, and you're talk about getting rid of liberal arts majors, it's really kind of one long story, just different chapters in a book or something.
1: By now you may be wondering to yourself, but don't we have a dire shortage of skilled workers and STEM specialists in particular? In a word, no. No, we don't. The data put out by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or the BLS to those in the know, tell a very different story of an economy that is dominated by, and will continue to be dominated by, low-wage jobs that don't require college degrees. Now, can those jobs be made better? Absolutely. But that is not what the fantasy economy narrative is all about. Instead, Neal identified what seemed like a concerted effort to come up with new data that confirmed the story of an urgent, looming skills gap. And central to this effort was a new think tank at Georgetown University called the Center on Education and the Workforce.
3: What the folks at Georgetown did is, is they explicitly challenged the BLS data. Their numbers at the Center on Education and the Workforce were much more optimistic, saying rather than about one-third or so, of jobs require more than a a high school degree. The CEW said that no, it's actually about two thirds of all jobs by 2020 will require post high school education. So their numbers were far more optimistic about the prospects for individuals who got a two year degree, four year degree. And yet the federal numbers, along with federal numbers from the Federal Reserve Board of New York that tracks underemployment bachelor's degree holders, Told a very different story, that the labor market is still dominated by typically low education, low-skill jobs, and low-wage jobs. And that as a result, about a third of all bachelor's degree holders for decades now, about a third are underemployed, meaning working in jobs that typically require less than the bachelor's degree.
1: A little more about the Center on Education in the Workforce, it was founded back in 2008 as a quote-unquote unique collaboration between three foundations, Lumina, Ford, and Gates. And very quickly, the CEW began producing alternative data, pointing to a very different job market and warning about what would happen if the U.S. didn't substantially increase its higher education attainment levels. The story of how that version of reality became gospel among policymakers and thought leaders is at the heart of the fantasy economy.
3: That's really what much of the book is about. It's about all this data that comes from foundation, corporate-funded entities. It would be very difficult to put political pressure on higher education using federal data. It'd just be extremely difficult because it's a whole different story. It's, It's, wait a minute. We can't send everybody to college. I mean, we can, but we're going to have more underemployed people. That's the inevitable conclusion. But if you start with, well, actually two-thirds, and just recently the CEW put out new data, I think they're saying 70% of all jobs by 2030 or 31, something like that, are going to require a post-high school degree. Whole different economy, whole different economy, whole different labor market.
1: So perhaps at this point you're thinking to yourself, wow, wow. I should get my hands on a copy of Neil's book. But also, can that really just happen? A think tank can just come up with its own data in order to bolster what is essentially a political narrative? Well, as it happens, another new book can shed some light on these questions. It's by Tim Schwab, and it's called The Bill Gates Problem. Gates, of course, is just one of the philanthropists who is deeply invested in the skills gap sales pitch. But Tim argues that that model of essentially funding a narrative complete with its own data is part and parcel of the kind of philanthropy as power model that Gates represents.
0: What Bill Gates is doing through philanthropy is really exercising power. He's not just writing checks indiscriminately and giving away money. Rather, he's using philanthropic donations to build a network, to fund many different NGOs, political advocacy groups, think tanks, journalism, universities – He has his own ideas about how to fix problems, whether it's U.S. public education or whether it's public health in sub-Saharan Africa. We all have ideas about the best way to fix these social problems. But we don't all have this $120 billion private fortune that we can use to turn our solutions into real public policy, into real political change. So that's really what I'm arguing in the book is that the Gates Foundation isn't a philanthropy. It's a political organization. What Bill Gates is doing is, is putting his hands on the levers of public policy to remake the world according to his own narrow and often wrong-headed vision of, of how things should work
1: as you can probably tell, Tim has got some opinions about Bill Gates. In fact, he calls him a bully and a monopolist who is convinced of his own righteousness and intent on imposing his ideas on everyone else. But this is a deeply researched book. And for listeners who have only experienced Gates' ideas in the realm of public education, it will be eye-opening, infuriating, and also deeply familiar.
0: The problems that you see in Gates' work in U.S. education, you see those multiply out across the other areas where it works, whether it's agricultural development in Africa, public health interventions throughout sub-Saharan Africa. You know, now Gates is working on climate change, financial inclusion, contraceptive access. It's really this dizzying array of topics in which he works But he pursues them all with the same kind of narrow, pretty classically neoliberal ideology of what the solution should be, what the intervention should be. So certainly this idea of the primacy of the private sector is a theme you see in all of the Gates Foundation's work. You know, at times I think arguably what they're really doing is eroding the public sector. They're finding new avenues for private actors, whether it's private billionaires, private foundations, private companies, public-private partnerships, Bringing more of this kind of undemocratic private sector influence to the democratic decision table.
1: And this pattern of generating new data to justify a particular policy solution is not just an education thing.
0: In its work in public health, it used to be the World Health Organization that would organize what are called health metrics that show us where people are dying in the world and why. And that was a process that was organized through the World Health Organization in partnership with member states, ostensibly kind of more of a democratic process. So the Gates Foundation essentially created an entirely new competing health metrics enterprise to create their own health metrics to show where people were dying and why. They organized this at the University of Washington and very quickly overtook the WHO as the premier provider, the gold standard of these health metrics. And what scholars in public health will say is that by doing this, by controlling the data or the estimates, you're able to really control the the narrative. You can show us where people are dying from malaria and how those deaths are changing because of the interventions the Gates Foundation is funding, how successful or not successful they are.
1: As for why Gates and his foundation would want to change the metrics about, say, the number of jobs will require college degrees in the future, Tim says that the answer is actually pretty simple, because they can.
0: The Gates Foundation today has $67 billion. They've put more than $10 billion into universities. You have the number of balloons from there if you start to think about think tanks and other research institutes. And so they have a great deal of influence over science even peer-reviewed science, university science, at the very highest level. Many universities today are taking hundreds of millions of dollars or even more than a billion dollars from the Gates Foundation. So if you have this ability to influence science or to change the metrics, you know, why wouldn't you, I guess is the question.
1: Way back at the start of the episode, Jack said that it's really important for us not to fall into the trap of thinking that policy elites or even billionaires like Bill Gates are puppet masters who secretly control everything. Well, Tim makes a similar argument that while part of Gates' motivation may be the desire for, say, cheaper engineers to work at Microsoft, there's something more profound at work here. Gates really believes he's got the fixes for what ails us, and his belief is constantly being reaffirmed.
0: None of this to say is that you know he's doing this through some calculated self-serving you know method. I don't argue that in the book. I really do think that Bill Gates is well-meaning in the sense that he really believes he's helping the world. That he is right and righteous in everything that he does. That he's a man born to lead, the smartest guy in the room. That he has this incredible wealth which he should share, and also he has this charitable mission which makes everything he does, you know, justified and rationalized. What's really scary to me is that we reward this behavior. You know, we give him public applause, we give him accolades, we give him billions of dollars in tax benefits.
1: Now, if you are a K-12 teacher or you know one, then you have probably experienced one or even multiple Gates initiatives to overhaul public education. There was the Small Schools Initiative, then the Common Core, then Teacher Effectiveness, aka tying teacher evaluations to test scores, and now it's math education, including more technology in the classroom. And Tim says that a big part of the problem is that neither Gates nor his now former wife seem to have learned anything along the way.
0: There's a quote I pull from Melinda French Gates where she and Bill over the years have talked about their failures in education, that they haven't really moved the needle. But there's this incredible quote from Melinda French Gates, which shows the sort of entitlement and the privilege of the Gates family, where they say, just because we haven't had success doesn't mean we should give up. And to me, that level of hubris is just so dangerous to think that you can keep throwing the dart, collateral damage be damned. You know, there are parents and teachers and students who are being hurt by the destructive, you know, wrong-headed interventions at the Gates Foundation. And we need to get to a new era where we can challenge Melinda French Gates and Bill Gates and say, no, actually this does mean you need to stop throwing the dart that your, your work is undemocratic and anti-democratic and it's causing problems. And this is not a good model of governance to have a well-meaning multibillionaire reorganizing public policy, reorganizing the world for the rest of us
1: back to Neil Krauss, whose research into the alternative data being generated by the Gates funded Center on Education and the Workforce gets a shout out in Tim's book. Since the fantasy economy came out, the attacks on higher education have only intensified. And if you dig into the overheated claims about campuses, centers of indoctrination, you will often find the same old argument about a looming skills gap. In other words, we've got to get rid of sociology because the kids are turning into Marxists. Also, the jobs of the future will require a STEM degree. Neil says that the political rhetoric is in some ways a response to the fact that dire warnings about the need for upskilling are falling flat.
3: I suspect that that's just a political calculation, that we can get people more worked up about DEI, if we say it's this horrible thing and we use words like indoctrination and all the rest of it, I think it's a political calculation because that reaches people more. And plus, the funny thing is, is that people, again, live in the real economy Their kids live in the real economy. They apply for jobs. They get laid off in the real economy. They don't get raises in the real economy. So I don't think you can lead with that stuff anymore. I just don't. The labor market's been upskilling at least since 1989, (laughs) at least. I mean, that's the first reference to the term. It was an article in the New York Times, you know, above the fold headline coincided with the George H.W. Bush education summit with the governors. And yet, if you read education reports today, we're still upskilling. It never really upskilled much. But what is that, 35 years? 38? I don't even know how many years. I just don't think people can be fooled by arguments about skills gaps and all that stuff. I think to get them focused on DEI is just a raw calculation.
1: So what do we do? Neil says that a key component of confronting the fantasy economy is to do more to fix what's wrong with the real economy pay people
3: more and give them job security, give them parental leave and give them enough paid time off, pay them time and a half for overtime, all the stuff we that we did just routinely up until 30, 40 years ago. It's interesting to me how the instability is marketed. I go to meetings and either read reports or hear people say to incoming students, yeah, you'll have 11 jobs by the time you're 40. Like it's marketed, it's thrilling, it's exciting. You know, You, you don't have any job stability at all, right? And yet that's terrible for people. It's terrible for their personal lives. It's terrible for their financial lives. They can't buy a house. They put off getting married. All this stuff because they don't have economic stability.
1: And when you hear, say, an economist making the claim that more bachelor's degrees and STEM degrees in particular will mitigate inequality, challenge them on that. And when you hear politicians claiming that we need to junk the entire liberal arts because there will only be STEM jobs in the future, challenge them too. Neil says that when he talks to people in the quote-unquote real world about his book, he finds that they're well aware of the gap between the rhetoric about the fantasy economy and the world they actually live in.
3: They actually understand it pretty quickly because virtually everybody has a job. A lot of people have kids that are looking for jobs that are going to go to school if they're not in college already. And I have found that the outside world, as I like to put it, is, is actually very willing to listen and understand what I'm saying
1: a big thanks to both of our special guests. Neil Krauss teaches political science and more at the University of Wisconsin River Falls and is the author of The Fantasy Economy. Tim Schwab is the author of The Bill Gates Problem, Reckoning with the Myth of the Good Billionaire. I highly recommend them both. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss the growing skepticism among young people regarding the skills gap sales pitch and to reveal the topic of this episode's in the Weed segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. A new campaign aims to eliminate all school district lines by 2030. What could go wrong? If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. So Jack, I think that in many ways the conversations with our two authors confirmed exactly what you were talking about at the beginning of the episode. That you know that there's it's not so much that you have a puppet master; it's it's a particular (laughs) it's a worldview that is then confirmed at every level by policymakers, by people in government, by think tanks, by journalists, and then you know all along the way, there you know you're you're pouring money into. This particular way of thinking, but you and I recently worked together on an op-ed. We're still looking for a home for it, and <laughs> we're and and what we were trying to make the case about was that there's a generational break with precisely the kind of worldview that somebody like a Bill Gates represents.
2: Yeah, and I think that one of the things that that's illustrative of is the fact that. There are no puppet masters. So even though policy elites are working really hard to shape the terms of the debate, even then, there are all kinds of factors, including individual human agency, that are at work here. And so why would it be that young people today are perhaps less likely to believe that the purpose of education is to get ahead in the world and that that, in fact, is the only acceptable and legitimate way of pursuing social and economic mobility? Well, consider some things that they have lived through that no amount of policy agenda setting would be able to control. They perhaps lived through the Great Recession. They most likely lived through a pandemic. They are right now living through a period of inflation. They have lived through a period in which people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have amassed enormous fortunes and have shown more interest in colonizing outer space than in advancing human dignity, right? So these are some of the contextual factors that are shaping the worldview of young people today and we can add more, like look at the recent union victories that we have seen that, you know, one of the points that you were making recently was that those have shown young people there is in fact an alternative to education in terms of pursuing economic stability in your life, that the bargaining table is just as legitimate as, let's say, a college degree, if what your fundamental concern is, is paying your bills someday. And we know that there are roughly 40 million Americans right now living in poverty. So I think it's important to recognize, and I'll say this wearing my historian's hat, that causality is always multiple. And when we're talking about why we end up believing particular things, it's a mix of particular people with power and influence. It's a mix of events unfolding that are often unpredictable and almost never perfectly replicable. It's a mix of the particular kinds of actions that individuals take, right? So when workers strike at a Starbucks, that changes history. And when you pull all of this together, you get what a coastal elitist would call a social milieu, Right, and and we're living through a shift in the social milieu. Oh man, I can't believe I'm. I just <laughs> used that word two times in a row.
1: All the while wearing your your historian's beret.
2: Yes, that's right, right. Uh, and my elbow patched coat. By the way, you know you didn't even knock when you opened the cabana and woke me from my margarita induced slumber.
1: And boy, is that a mistake that I will not make again. (laughs) So, and I think the reason what you're saying is so important is because it's so, you know, it's possible to read books like Neil's book, The Fantasy Economy, or Tim's book, The Bill Gates Problem, and come away feeling like, man, you know, we'll never get anywhere. You know, the smartest guy in the world has all the money and, you know, and, and he can do, he can make the schools small. He can tether teacher evaluations to test scores. You know, like now he's moved on to, to math education. Like, we'll we'll never ever be able to do anything. But then, you know, it's actually when you look at the way that that opinion is shifting and and actually, you know, putting his way of thinking in a smaller box, you, you know, like I, I find that really kind of invigorating.
2: Yeah. And I think anytime we see that we are not passive actors in history, right, that it is not something that inevitably will be done to us, but that we do have agency here. And our agency is always limited, and power is a real thing, right, that we have to contest with. And and being systematically disempowered means that it doesn't do you a whole heck of a lot of good to have Jack Schneider on his podcast saying, you know, everybody's <laughs> got agency. <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, it is, I think invigorating and inspiring to be reminded that our individual actions matter and that our collective actions matter even more and that ideas can change the world and that when we decide that we want to change the terms of the game, that actually is a possibility, right? We're not hemmed in by the existing rules. And I think that's something that people get frustrated with oligarchs about because they think that oligarchs have set the terms of the game and they're often right that that they've had tremendous and outsized influence in that but they haven't fixed those terms right so i think it's a lot more useful to get even than to just get mad or maybe at least use getting mad as a kind of precondition for getting active
1: I think I'm going to ask our excellent producer, Francisco, to lay down some, a stirring orchestral movement during <laughs> during the last part of that. Uh, maybe something from Aaron Copeland.
2: I was thinking maybe music from Les Mis. <laughs>
1: Well, I know that people are very eager to find out what we're going to be talking about in the weeds, and and this is a good one. There's a new campaign that aims to rid the world of school district boundaries by the year 2030, and and I know from uh, from uh, people I've been hearing from that. This, there are a lot of people who find this idea appealing and so we're going to be talking about who's behind the campaign um uh where where it's headed and and what it might look like and so if this interests you all you have to do is go to patreon.com have you heard podcast and you'll see a list of the ways that you can support the show for just a couple of dollars each month you help us pay our great producer and keep the show going and then it's a transaction Relationship and we'll send stuff your way. You get a custom reading list. And if you subscribe at the $10 a month rate, you get a copy of our last book, A Wolf of the Schoolhouse Door, while we wait for the imminent arrival of our next book, The Education Wars. Jack, anything (laughs) else to add?
2: Well, just that if you are interested in relationships that are anything other than transactional, and I say this having just come off of a speaking engagement where there were lots of Have You Heard fans, and it was really cool. I was at Amherst College, and I was there with friend of the show, Ethan Hutt. And in fact, that has inspired what I want to suggest to you, Jennifer, and maybe I'll talk about this in the weeds, um, is a new level of Patreon membership that we could call the Pickleballers, where you would offer tips At pickleball and friend of the show ethan hutt would offer tips at pickling because i learned that he Uh is an expert Uh pickler and even does his own kimchi Um, so anyway um, great to see people in real life and just a reminder that we are a community and it's so great that you all are out there and listening and spreading the word and talking with each other and networking in the real world Um, just remember that uh, that we only grow the show and our audience and our community because of you. So, you know, go out and tell somebody about our little show. And if you haven't already made sure you're a subscriber, do that. Give us a rating. Beat that inspirational show with the same name. And otherwise, keep on keeping on.
1: Jack knows that I'm very hostile to pickleball and that <laughs> that just that just the name of the sport sen- sends me into a a, a spiral of outrage.
2: <laughs> it's another topic for in the weeds. Do we just keep generating topics there to talk about?
1: On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire
2: and I'm Jack Schneider.
1: This is have you heard?